I'm going to ask you if you'll open your Bibles this morning to Luke chapter 4, and I want to talk with you about when public opinion turns against you. I read a terribly alarming article this last week about a a recent poll that found that only 43% of Americans were strongly opposed or opposed to hormone therapy or surgical procedures on children and adolescents that were irreversible related to gender. 43% strongly opposed or opposed. Of those 43%, 80% of the 43 said that the most important thing in their life, the thing that mattered more to them than anything else in all the world was their religion. The majority of those 43% who said that are evangelical Protestant Christians. In a day and time when we would not allow children to enlist in the military, buy cigarettes, go into a bar and order a drink, we're moving rapidly toward children and adolescents being able to undergo by their own choice gender hormone therapy or irreversible surgical procedures. We are more and more in the minority. It shouldn't surprise us the same was true when Jesus ministered. Polls don't determine truth. Truth determines truth. And what we find in the passage that we're going to look at today that Jesus himself was on the wrong side of public opinion, at least when it came to his hometown of of Nazareth. The passage that we're going to look at, it's been strategically placed where it is by Luke as the very first episode in Jesus' public ministry. Immediately following his temptation in the wilderness, he's going to go to the village of Nazareth where he was raised And he's going to preach a message, and the response will ultimately be that they're going to try to murder him. Now, if we were to look at Mark's gospel, immediately after the temptation of Jesus in Mark's gospel, Jesus doesn't go to Nazareth, he goes to Capernaum. He casts a demon out of a man, he heals Simon Peter's uh, mother-in-law, he spends an entire evening casting out demons and healing the sick. Now, some would say, well, Mark and Luke must be in conflict. One of them must be wrong because Luke has the first episode after the temptation of Jesus preaching in Nazareth, while Mark has the first episode after the temptation of Jesus, him preaching in Capernaum. Well, the Gospels aren't journals. They're not day-by-day diaries. They're not in opposition at all. They're complementary. Sometimes the authors will place their stories in a particular order to make a theological point. That's exactly what Luke has done. Luke has taken an event that's described in Mark chapter 6. He brings it all the way forward to to chapter 4 in his gospel, makes it the first episode after Jesus comes out of the wilderness because he wants to give us 
the lenses through which we're to interpret Jesus' ministry. They're like the glasses so that we can understand what's taking place throughout the rest of the gospel. Luke isn't in contradiction to Mark at all. We shouldn't be disturbed by this at all. This is the way that the gospels were, were written. And what Luke wants to do is to help us understand what Jesus came to do and how many people misinterpreted it, and ultimately it led to his, it led to his crucifixion. I want you to notice in verses 14 and 15 with me that Jesus is the anointed one. You remember that he goes into the wilderness full of the Spirit. He is led by the Spirit into the wilderness. He comes out of the wilderness in the power of the Spirit. So look in verses 14 and 15 with me. And Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread throughout the surrounding region. And he began teaching in their synagogues and was praised by all. So in a day and time before Twitter and Facebook and the internet, Jesus begins his ministry in power and word begins to spread. No one has ever preached quite like he preached. No one could heal like he healed. No one was able to cast out demons like he cast out demons. And so Jesus is ministering not only in the fullness of the Spirit, but in the power of the Spirit. The second thing that I want you to notice is this, that his ministry is going to be Scripture-based. It's going to be a preaching ministry. It's going to be a ministry of proclamation. It's going to be a ministry where Jesus declares himself to be the one that rescues desperate people, people that are in terrible predicaments. Uh, look with me beginning in verse 16, and let me read through verse 21. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read. And the scroll of Isaiah the prophet was handed to him, and he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed. And so Jesus quotes from Isaiah. He quotes from the book of Isaiah. He wants them to understand exactly what he has come to do. Uh, look with me in verses 16 and 17. That's where we see his, that's where we see the setting for this sermon. The setting for the sermon is in the village of Nazareth. Now, he was brought up in Nazareth. When he was a little boy, he played with those boys who had now grown up to grown men. Uh, those who were now elderly watched him as a little boy be grown up. They knew Mary and Joseph. They, they knew Jesus, his brothers and sisters. And so Jesus goes into the village of Nazareth, and, and he preaches a sermon the sermon is based upon Isaiah chapter 61, verses 1 and 2, and Isaiah chapter 58, verse 6. Now, the last part of the text from Isaiah reads like this, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And so what Jesus is doing in this sermon is he is laying out for his hearers what his mission is all about, what his message is. It's to be about. It's to be about good news. 
Now, an interesting thing happens when you go over and you look at Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2. Jesus leaves out a phrase. The phrase that Jesus leaves out is the final phrase in verse 2 that reads, the day of the vengeance of our God. Jesus intentionally leaves out that particular phrase because Jesus has not come to be to judge, He has come to save. Now, there is coming a day when He will return to judge, uh, but He says He has not come to judge. And that judgment in Isaiah is primarily against the Gentiles, people like you and me, people outside the Jewish faith, people that aren't a part of the righteous remnant. Uh, but he has also come to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord, as I mentioned a moment ago. Well, who are the people that Jesus has come to minister to? Who are the people that Jesus has come to preach the gospel to? Well, listen to this list. First, he came for the poor. Not only those who are financially poor, which Jesus has a heart for impoverished people, but also to those who are spiritually poor. Matthew put it this way, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He came for the prisoner. He came to set the captive free. Every person, whether they recognize it or not, lives in one of two kingdoms, either the kingdom of darkness or the kingdom of God. And those who are in the kingdom of darkness have as their master Satan, who is the prince of the power of the air. Jesus said he is the prince of this world. So he's come for those who are captive. You know, you may be here today and you feel like you're enslaved to a particular sin. You may feel enslaved to a particular lifestyle. You may feel there's no hope or no escape from the circumstances and the situation that you're in, but Jesus came to set the captive free. We'll see that over and over and over again in the Gospel of Luke, whether it's being captive to sexual immorality, whether it's being captive to alcoholism, whatever it is, Jesus sets captives free. Uh, he also says that he is, he's come to bring freedom to the oppressed. That word oppressed, it's an interesting word. It, it means to feel crushed, burdened, overwhelmed. Jesus came to give hope to those who are oppressed. He came to set free those who are in debt. That verse, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord, refers to the Old Testament practice of the year of Jubilee. You may not be familiar with the year of Jubilee. It's a, I, I like the way it sounds. Every 50 years, a person's land would revert to its ancestral owners. Every 50 years, all debt was to be eliminated. Every 50 years, every slave was to be set free, the year of Jubilee. And so he says he came to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. Uh, that is, he came to forgive our debt of sin. He, we had a debt we could not pay. He paid a debt he did not owe. That's the idea in the year of Jubilee as Jesus is referring to it, referring to it here. 
Do any of these do any of these words describe you? Whether it's prisoner, oppressed, captive, a debt of sin, the good news is Jesus came for you. Jesus came to set you free. Jesus came to be your savior. That is good news. And let me just pause for just a moment and say thank you to you. I can't tell you how proud and grateful I am to be a part of a church where people love people. Where people love people whether they know Jesus or don't know Jesus. Where they love the members of their church, but they love the world and they want to see the world come to saving faith. Jay Lynn and I have been members of this church longer than any church that we've ever been a part of since we've been married, and it'll be 40 years this year, and even as children. Uh, Jay Lynn and I married when she was 21, and uh, she, she and her family were founding members of the church that I was saved in, but she's been a member of this church longer than her childhood church. And I... I am absolutely confident that when a person, no matter, how, no matter how enslaved they are to sin, were to come through the doors of this church, they would be, they would be loved. And they would know the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. I want you to notice with me thirdly that we shouldn't measure success by numbers. The crowd is often wrong. Look with me in verse 22. And all the people were speaking well of him and admiring his gracious words, which were coming from his lips. And yet, they were saying, is this not Joseph's son? Now, it's a little bit hard to know how to interpret all of that. Initially, they were very favorable. Initially, they were very positive. Initially, they thought, this is, this is stunning. We watched Jesus grow up. Listen to the way he speaks, his command of the scriptures, how, how, how insightful he is. But then they begin to take a little bit of offense to him. And, and we see that in Jesus' response, beginning in verse 23, he knew they were offended at him. Is this not Joseph's son? That's a slander and, an, and a slanderous accusation because they thought he couldn't be Joseph's son because Mary was pregnant with Jesus before Joseph was married to Mary. They didn't believe in the virgin birth. They believed that Mary had conceived Jesus out of wedlock. So to say, is this not Joseph's son, is a slanderous way of saying, who does he think he is, telling us how we ought to live, telling us how we ought to, uh, how we ought to be. His mother, he was conceived in illegitimacy. Familiarity has a way of breeding contempt. They were so familiar with him, they couldn't see him for who he actually was. God incarnate. He had been raised in that village, and they had never seen him sin. They had never seen him sin in his thinking, in his feelings, or in his actions. Not a single time. And yet, they are slandering him because they don't like the way that he's putting his finger on 
the pulse of their spiritual lives. And so, in verses 23 through 27, although the majority was against him, Jesus doesn't allow the majority to get him sidetracked. Jesus keeps his focus on his mission, and he doesn't get sidetracked by his detractors. So what he does in verse 24, he quotes a proverbial saying, this is the way that we know that Jesus understood that they were slandering him, they were belittling him, they were mocking him, they were taunting him when he said, is this not Joseph's son? And he said to them, no doubt you will quote this proverb to me. Physician, heal yourself. All the miracles that we heard were done in Capernaum do here in your hometown as well. Now, this is one way that we know that Luke has moved the event forward. Because it's not till the next section that actually Jesus goes to Capernaum. It's not till a little bit later that Mark describes him going to Nazareth. But nevertheless, they want him to prove himself. If, you, if you're so special, if you're so substantial, if you're so significant, prove yourself to us. So Jesus responds again, truly I say to you, no prophet is welcome in his, home, his hometown. And then he's going to push the button that's going to send him into ballistic orbit. He's going to compare his ministry to the ministry of Elijah and Elisha. And when he's finished, they want to murder him. The people that knew him best probably loved him as a child growing up admired him as a young man with, with uh, phenomenal carpenter skills. He's an artisan. He, he, he's caring for his family. They're going to go ballistic. What I'll suggest in, such, in just a moment, there's nothing worse than a mean-spirited religious person because mean-spirited religious people don't have a Savior. So Jesus, beginning in verse 20, 24 and following, is, is going to talk about two men, actually verse 25 and following. He's going to talk about two men. He's going to talk about Elijah and Elisha. And he says, my ministry is going to be like Elijah's, and my ministry is going to be like Elisha. Now, these two prophets are not as familiar to us as they, they were to Jesus' audience. So we'll say a little bit more about them in a moment. But notice with me again in verse 25. But I say to you, in truth, there were many widows, there were many widows in the days of Elijah when the sky was shut up for three years and six months, when a severe famine came over all the land. And yet Elijah was sent, the, the, the thought is he didn't go, God sent him to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon. To a, wid to a woman, and she was a widow. Uh, so he's, he's talking about a story in 1 Kings chapter 17. He's talking about a time in Israel's history when it wasn't raining and there was a terrible famine. He's talking about a time when many people were virtually starving to death, and Elijah the prophet was sent to a woman, a pagan woman, a woman living in a, a pagan village, a woman living among a pagan people. 
And, and this woman, interestingly enough, when Elijah encountered her, was collecting firewood. And what she was going to do, she was going to prepare for herself and her, and her son, she's a widow, a final meal, realizing that after this we're probably going to die of starvation. There, there's no food to be found. And Elijah encounters the woman, and he asks the woman for a, something to drink and something to eat. And the woman gives him something to drink, and then she prepares the food and gives him something to eat, the, the food that was for her son and, and for her, their final meal together. And if the story maybe is starting to, to come to your mind again, you'll remember that God miraculously provided for Elijah, for the widow, and her son throughout the rest of the famine. So the point that he's making is God sent Elijah to a pagan people. Now, the second story is about Elisha. Let me go ahead and finish uh, verse 26. And yet Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath, to the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many with leprosy in Israel at the time of Elisha the prophet. And, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. So in Israel, there's the prophet Elisha. Elisha was mentored by Elijah. He followed in Elijah's footsteps. So the land has people filled with leprosy. But the only person that Elisha the prophet healed was Naaman the Syrian. Uh, Naaman went to Israel to, to seek out Elisha. Elisha told him, go and wash in the Jordan River seven times. Dip seven times in the Jordan River. Naaman thought that was so ridiculous, so preposterous, that he initially rejected the recommendation but having been persuaded by one of his servants, he, he went and he dipped seven times in the Jordan River and God healed him. Notice in verse 28, and all the people in the synagogue were filled with rage as they heard these things. Why? Why were they so angry? Why were they so hostile? Well, Jesus was saying, my ministry is going to be like Elijah's ministry and Elisha's ministry. My ministry is going to be to people on the fringes. I'm going to minister to the poor, the captive, the oppressed, the blind, the indebted. I'm, I'm not going to pander to people just because of prestige and power and wealth. I'm going to minister to all people, even people outside the confines of, of our religion. It was Elijah sent by God to the widow of Zarephath. It was Naaman who was directed to Elisha, ultimately by God. There were many widows that were virtually starving to death in Elijah's time, Israelite, Jewish widows on the brink of starvation. There were many people in Israel with leprosy, but only Naaman the Syrian one of Israel's traditional enemies, was healed. It enraged them that Jesus would show a concern 
for people outside their group. I want to pause, though, for just a moment, and it's something that came to my mind this week that I, I, I thought interesting, and, and I thought quite a bit about, though I didn't come to any inspirational answers. What are we to think about those who were not fed and those who were not healed? Did none of those people love God? Were none of those people faithful to God? Were none of them a part of the righteous remnant? Maybe the, the parents and the grandparents of Mary and Joseph, Zechariah and Elizabeth, Simeon and Anna that we've already talked about? They're starving. They're struggling with leprosy. And yet Elijah went to a widow in a foreign village Naaman comes to Elisha, a foreigner, and is healed. Did God not love any of those people or, or, any, or all of those bad people? Well, of course they weren't all bad people. Of course God loved them. Of course many of them loved God very, very much. And yet, Elijah passed many villages with starving widows, and he went to Zarephath to a widow. As, as Naaman comes to Israel, he passes probably many people that are struggling with leprosy, infectious skin disease, and yet he's the only one that's healed by Elisha. You know, sometimes we think God doesn't love us when we're not one of those that are healed. Or sometimes we think I must not love God because I've not been healed. You know, there's a mystery to suffering. If we had time, I would have taken you to 2 Corinthians to a long list of terrible things that happened to the Apostle Paul. Did all of these things that happened to the Apostle Paul happen to him because God didn't love him or he didn't love God? No. But he suffered greatly. As I mentioned to you earlier, Jaylen and I, we've been married almost 40 years. This April will be 40 years. I've never seen her go through a darker time than the extensive period of time that her, her mother was dying from the effects of, of COVID and dementia. She already had Alzheimer's and, and was struggling seriously, but when she got COVID, it just pushed her over into absolute depths of complete incoherence. Jalen's here, there, she's there. Uh, she's, she's making many trips down there to, so she can help her sister care for her mom in, in a uh, convalescent center. And uh, about the time she gets back, it's time to wash clothes, get started, and go back, uh, go back again. Her mom loved Jesus since her mom was about 12 years of age. I mean, really loved Jesus, faithfully loved Jesus, genuinely loved Jesus, just like many of the senior adults in our church, virtually their entire life and in her entire life, essentially. I never saw her cry more. I never saw her grieve more deeply 
we've experienced the death of my mom, the death of my brother, the, de- the unexpected death of her foster father. It, it seemed like it would never end. Some people, their, their parents got COVID. They, they passed away terrible, horrific, painful, in a, in a, in a slightly different way. So then we have to ask, was Jay Lynn and her mom suffering because they didn't love Jesus or because Jesus didn't love them? Suffering can mess us up because when we're suffering, Satan is able to do his best work at deceiving us into thinking if you didn't love Jesus, or if you love Jesus, you wouldn't be suffering. Or Jesus doesn't love you, or you wouldn't be suffering. There's a mystery to suffering that we can't understand. We don't usually think about the fact that Elijah passed by a lot of villages with a lot of starving widows to go to Zarephath. That as Naaman traveled from Syria to Elijah, he passed a lot of leprous people. A lot of those people loved God, and God definitely loved them. But there is a mystery to suffering that we're not able to explain. And so I say as a side note, suffering is a dangerous place to be. That's why you've got to be grounded in the truth, because your emotions will lead you astray. Your emotions will cause you to think, God must not love me or I wouldn't be experiencing this, or I must not love God or I wouldn't be experiencing this. That's not true. We live in a fallen world. And what happened here happens in the ministry of Jesus. We're going to see Jesus heal many people, but not all people. We're going to see Jesus cast out demons from many people, but not from all people. And so... The crowd response, however, is just to go ballistic. Uh, notice, notice beginning in, in verse 28 through the end of the passage, when religion gets mad, it gets really mad. When religious people who don't know Jesus, who don't love Jesus get angry, they get really angry. And so it says, beginning in verse 28, and all the people in the synagogue were filled with rage as they heard these things. And they got up and drove him out of the city and brought him to the crest of the hill on which their city had been built so that they could throw him down from the cliff. But he passed through their midst and went on the way. The crowd isn't always right. The majority may be flat out wrong. That's why we have to be guided by truth. And we need to be people who embrace that truth. Well, we look at all of this, and let me just give you a couple of final thoughts this morning. The first one is this. The gospel should go to all people. Jesus went outside the confines of traditional Judaism, as did Elijah and Elijah. But he also went to the people of Israel. So whether it's a person is rich or poor, educated or uneducated, 
a slave to the most hideous of sins, or they live a pristine life without Jesus. It doesn't matter who they are. We need to be a person that sees them in need of a Savior, and we need to be willing to share the Savior with all people. The gospel should go to all people. It should go across the street and around the world. The second thought is this. Don't be surprised at the ever-increasing hostility of society. We shouldn't be surprised at it. The, the biblical standards of morality are in direct contradiction to the prevailing trends of politics and education. We need to know what we believe, why we believe it. And we need to stand for what we believe in, in the right way, but stand with it, stand for it nonetheless. Third, don't get sidetracked or discouraged. Jesus didn't. Jesus kept his eyes on the mission. You would have thought that after he was run out of his hometown, they wanted to kill him, that he was just sunk into despair and despondency and discouragement. The people that know me best and love me most have rejected me. No, he just kept right on preaching and teaching and healing and exercising demons. He kept doing what God called him here to do, and that is to march toward Golgotha. Keep your eyes on the mission. Don't be sidetracked by discouragement. And then finally, pray that we can serve together the Lord in the power of the Spirit. Let's covenant together as, a, as the people of God, as the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, as the Ninth and O Baptist Church, to serve together in the power of the Spirit, to reach the gospel for all people, no matter who they are no matter how dark the life that they're living, every person ought to have the opportunity to hear the gospel message. And we don't want to cloister ourselves by keeping the world at arm's, uh, arm's length when Jesus didn't do that. Jesus went to the world. We should go to the world. And as I said earlier, I want to say again, praise be to God, I am grateful to be a part of a church that believes that. I don't have to convince you of that. I don't have to manipulate, coerce you, or connive in some kind of underhanded way to get you to believe that people need the gospel and that loving people, praying for people, reaching out to people should be a part of the DNA of this church, and I'm, I'm grateful for that. I'm going to ask you to stand, and I'm going to lead us in a word of prayer. It may very well be today that you would like to talk to someone. And that, that list of people in Isaiah 61, 1 and 2, the poor, the blind, the captive, the oppressed, the indebted. Maybe that's exactly how you feel today. I've got the best news in the world. That's how I felt. That's where I was at 19 years of age. I wasn't born with a silver spoon in my mouth. I didn't come from a pristine upbringing. I needed Jesus. And if you need Jesus, we want to share Jesus with you today. You can come to one of our staff members. You can go to one of the guest information tables. Those people know Jesus, and they will talk with you about Jesus. If you want to talk to me or Jay Lynn, just send me a message. Listen, we would love to come sit down in your living room and talk with you about how you can know Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you today that we serve a Savior that loves people, 
that he demonstrated that by going to those who needed him, whether they knew it or not. Thank you for the example of Elijah and Elisha and how they obeyed you and ministered to those outside their very strict Jewish faith. So as we conclude our service today, Father, let us be reminded of the fact you do love us. You haven't forgotten us. And let us reflect that as we worship you. In Jesus' name, amen.